across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hotcakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with Matt Bentman, Sue Bailey and me, Alan Alder. Today on Flavour, we catch up with Mark Poynton and find out about his new venture. I visit Cambridge Market to find out from stallholders their experience of the lockdown. I talk with Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, about what's good to forage in July. We hear from Monica Askey about a new book covering the orchards of eastern England and we'll also have a summary from Sue of this year's Oxford Food Symposium. And throughout the programme, we'll be bringing you the food and drink news for Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire, including jobs. Tequila! Mark Poynton was quick off the mark in getting deliveries up and running during lockdown. Now, he's opened up the garden of the ancient shepherd in Fenditton for meals and drinks. And the meals are very different from those at Alimentum, where he gained a Michelin star. I asked him why that is, and what his plans are for the pub. And I've seen mention of rooms as well. Yeah, there's five Latin bedrooms here as well. Yes. Uh, so we turn it into a restaurant with rooms and lounge rather than a pub. So is I mean, this sounds like a big deal. Is this is this is permanent then? Is it? Yeah, this is permanent now. This will be, this will be the new restaurant. This means that uh, there won't be a, a central Cambridge one. No, no, no. Which I don't, I don't think is a bad thing in, under the current climate. And I was interested in the the menu you've got as well. I mean, is that is that a sort of permanent style of cooking? The, the takeaway stuff is not permanent, and the delivery stuff is is just a means to an end for the time being. Obviously, because with the home delivery stuff, we needed to cook something that could be reheated quite easy. So that's the reason why we've gone for those homely, delicious meals, which obviously you've had yourself, Alan. Yeah, indeed, and enjoyed them greatly as well. So, what you know? Have you got any thoughts on what sort of, you know, an example of a dish that might be on the menu? Not really a dish as such, but it's going to be it's going to be a menu which is going to be based around. There'll be a section of cold starters, then fish dishes, then meat dishes, then plant-based dishes, and they'll all be available as half portion or full portion, so you can pick and choose what you want. So, if you want a standard three-course menu, you can have a standard three-course menu because you can pick and choose that. That's great for people who like variety and tasting different things. That's just what they want, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's all going to be priced quite keenly. And it's going to, it's going to have, you know, something for everybody. That's why we're doing the plant-based dishes as well. And there's something else that's 
come up recently, which is the subject of no shows. Uh, people who've booked for restaurants, uh, book tables in restaurants, and then don't turn up. And I know it's something that you've talked about quite a lot in the past, but there's been a particularly extreme example affecting uh, Tom Kerridge, where 27 people didn't turn up. What, 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 what can you tell us? You know how badly that affects restaurants. I mean, 27 is obviously going to affect it very badly but how have you been yeah, affected in the past it's also affected Paul Ainsworth for the weekend as well he's also another big celebrity chef he had 27 people not show up but the, the, the problem is we in, in current circumstances you're only really open at 50% occupancy really a quarter or a third of your restaurant isn't turning up you've staffed for it you've bought food for it you've bought everything for it obviously you've got to turn the lights on you're probably 27 people is talking a loss in revenue of two and a half grand for those sort of guys. That's, that's just revenue, that's not including staff, so for 27 people you probably need two waiters and two chefs. Yeah. So you're probably talking another five, six hundred pound in cost of staff on top of the, the loss of two and a half grand worth of revenue. And it's, it's just mind-boggling that people don't understand that restaurants just don't have an endless queue of people waiting to get into them. Yeah. Once you're fully booked, you're fully booked. You don't just keep taking bookings. It's not like British Airways that So what can you do about it? What are you doing about it? that's likely to become more common presumably and how I mean you must be in touch with quite a lot of chefs you know how are how are chefs or restaurant owners feeling about things at the moment pretty nervous I would have thought going to affect the style of cuisine you know will labor intensive courses disappear i remember you telling me once about a starter at elementum that took quarter of an hour to make and sort of about a minute to eat will that sort of thing go yeah i mean i think it's going to be a 
stop that, but what will happen is the price of food's going to go up in restaurants because, you know, we're going to have, the restaurant owners can still have to pay for everything. And if these restrictions aren't released soon, you know, prices are going to go up and go up and go up and go up. And that's, that's the only thing that's going to happen. And yet there's going to be redundancies, aren't there? So, Of course, of course, yeah, you know, there's, there's already widespread redundancies in the hospitality industry and there's going to, it's going to be a lot more, a lot more, I think, which is, which is quite sad. Right, well, let's look f- to the future. When, uh, when is, when's the Shepherd going to open fully? So we are taking bookings from the 20th of August. Uh, to start with, we're opening Thursday, Friday, Saturday, lunch and dinner, and Sunday lunch only. Uh, rooms are available seven days a week. Uh, so if somebody wants to just stay over, uh, there'll be packages for dinner, bed and breakfast. There'll be room only packages and bed and breakfast packages. So yeah, you can go, on, go online to or check out my Twitter, Instagram, all those sort of things, and, you know, follow links and book, book there. Well, let's hope lots of people do. <laughs> OK, Mark, thanks very much indeed. No problem, Alan. Thanks for that. OK, thanks. I'll see you. Let's have our first news break now, and Bill's in Green Street reopened yesterday, and it has used lockdown time to have a refurbishment. Shelford Deli is now fully open. Just walk in following the one-way system. Parker's Tavern in Regent Street opens on the 24th of July for alfresco dining in a new terrace on Parker's Peace. The menu will include pizzas and a light bites menu. Indoor service will start on the 31st of July. Bookings are open online now. The Oak Bistro in Lensfield Road has reopened. The Geographer in Impington is now open until 5pm on Fridays. And Calverley's Brewery, the little microbrewery on Hooper Street, is opening up shop today, that's Saturday, for takeout and home delivery only. So that's from now until 8pm. It'll be card only, and you won't have to enter the building, which will allow for social distancing. And beer-wise, they'll have Farmhouse Ale, a single hop, uh, some Nipah, Simcoe Haze and Star Dog. That's dog with a W. Good to know they're back. They were the last people that I interviewed before lockdown. And some great news about Jack's Gelato. A second branch is opening in All Saints Passage in what until recently has been a tailor's shop. Owner Jack Van Prague says he thinks it's the most beautiful retail setting in the city and he can't wait to scoop there. So All Saints Passage will become even more of a foodie paradise, with Cambridge Cheese Company and Hill Street Chocolatier already there. The Red Bull Inn is cutting 15% from the price of food until at least January, and 50% off your food and soft drinks bill in August. Brewboard in Hoxton is delivering cases of their beers, free delivery on orders over £45. Details at brewboard.co.uk slash shop. After 47 years of trading, Don Pasquale's in Cambridge's Market Square has closed down for good, a result of COVID-19 and fixed rising costs. However, the Benedetto family continues to provide food and drink at the Plough in Coton and the Old Crown in Girton. Now for this next feature, I took a trip down to the Cambridge Market. Nothing particularly unusual in that, except I haven't been there since March. I haven't even been into town since March. So here was a chance to catch up with some familiar voices who have featured on Flavour over the years and just kind of gauge the temperature of the market post-lockdown. Now, I've omitted names because there's a lot of people in this feature and I just wanted to make something that was more of an easy listen. You know? A feeling. 
Okay? Okay. Right, five, four. Zoom in there. <laughs> Do you know, it's really good to see people come out again from lockdown. It's been different because they know the storeholders. Hello, good morning. And they can touch base almost. It's like the social hub of our city. Hello, morning. <laughs> There's always a roller coaster working on a, on a market stall, weather dependent and everything like that. Ah, your first weekend. Yeah, and I think it's been really good so far. Some of the people that visit from other countries think that it's a medieval market. <laughs> but it is, in a way, because it has been here since medieval times, yeah. That's Glenys. She's been here for 20 years. 20 years. She founded the Friends of Cambridge Market. I've saved the cobbles. I mean, there was mutterings of the cobbles being taken away with the redevelopments. And I did that because, because it's our heritage, you know. She's intensely proud of the market. I'd defend it with my life, I really would. If any harm was going to come to it, I'd make sure that it wouldn't. <laughs> and lockdown has been a testing time for the storeholders. Still here, still hanging in there by the skin of my teeth at the moment. Everyone just assumed that the whole market was closed, which it was, apart from a few food stalls. And what kind of foods can you find on the market? Herbs and spices, dried fruits. Paella, you can hear it sizzling away in the background, getting ready for people coming in. Nuts, pulses, snacks. Cured salamis. The arepa, a cornbread, is really typical in Colombia and Venezuela for the breakfast, lunch and dinner. It's gluten-free, healthy and delicious, obviously. <laughs> Fresh marinated olives. From Piemonte, Napoli, all the way to truffle salami, pistachios, wild boar from Tuscany. Coffee beans fresh to the ground. Fresh fruit from the garden. Gyros, we call gyros, is similar to kebab. My stall is called the Haluman and I do everything that's vegetarian based around halloumi. Sway Camp Coffee, look for the flag, look for the flag, sir. Apples, plums, cherries, bananas, almost. <laughs> Not really the bananas, but anything that we can grow in our orchard. Cacio cavallo, cheeses, provolone, yeah, I mean, you name it, all the way to English cheeses, yes, yeah. The bees have been very busy, so we've got plenty of honey. And lots and lots of different tea leaves. Yes, we have everything. The market adapted during lockdown as the food stalls shifted to the outside edges. But that atmosphere in lockdown was really special, you know, it really was. We would just be a few bunch of us. Initially, the market was still buzzing still, with customers coming to buy things on the outside. But if you walked out of the market square, it was deathly quiet and really eerie and weird. I phoned the management, or the management phoned me, and they said, look, you realise you're classified as essential traders with, with, with food? That's right, for social distancing, most of the food stall holders have been moved to the edge. On the outside, on the perimeter, and it's worked really well. It also helps people when they come to the market and they want to find out where the food, they know they can do the circle of the market. And little by little, up until a couple of weeks ago, they had a one-way system through the aisles to keep people apart. But as the restrictions were lifted over the last few weeks, how did they feel about it? First week it was very quiet. Second week it was still quiet. I'm the only Greek stall in the market. We've been here now for two weeks after the lockdown. It was a challenging. Yeah, but we just managed to, you know, to carry on. Third week, a few more people ventured out. It's quieter. Not busy, you know, not really busy. And we have to be positive to go in better. We've seen a steady growth. There have been quite a lot of people. Things are coming very much back to life now. 
And then little by little, more and more people have come out and just gone, yeah, happy to see you here, sort of thing. But every week is different, so that when the pubs opened, obviously everything cooled down a little bit. But they are very well behaved, lovely local people. I think it will slowly get back to normal. Alright, cool. I'm Charles and I'm playing at Cambridge Market. Right. really good about our market is that people can start new little businesses and the innovation down here and the dedication of the stall holders uh, to look after their customers is, is really moving actually. And vice versa. <laughs> so the locals have pretty much kept a lot of people afloat over the last few months so there's no doubt about that at all. Oh the customers have done it honestly we can't thank them enough they've really gone to town. And even during these tricky times, the market is welcoming new food stalls. Yes, hi there. So I'm Adam. I have the Cookie Place stall. And it's a pretty nervous time. I had done one day previous before lockdown. So coming back out, it's been slow to start, but it's seeming to pick up. I believe they are the best cookies. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, got to back it up now. I've always been into baking, but my actual background was personal training. And then one day I just fancied a change. So I gave this a shot and here I am now, I'm trying to push it. <laughs> and as Adam joins the other food store holders and life continues to ease back into the flow of things, it's time to make hay while the sun shines. I think they're happy to be getting back into it because it's certainly been a while. It makes you feel really lovely when you've been away for so long and you have these horrible feelings like, when I come back, is nobody going to like my cake? And we just never, you know, no, we're never going to see any of our local customers. Have they, have they found something else, you know? Or, and then seeing them all come back and say how much they've missed you and how much they loved coming to see it. It's their first proper coffee or whatever. It makes you realise why you do it and that this is probably the best job ever. We need people to come, come all over the places, come to Cambridge Market. It's fun. <laughs> Have a cup of tea. Thank you much indeed to all the 105 listeners. Wonderful. Thank you for support during the lockdown. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> I hope it goes well. And if you don't buy anything, we still enjoy the sunshine. It's a lovely place to be. <laughs> Thanks again, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Best wishes Thank you. to everybody who's listening. Good luck. All the best. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, wish you all the best and stay safe. It's the value of this space and they're really enjoying it again and that's what they've been telling me today. Many thanks to all who chatted with me for that feature. Now the voices you just heard run various food stalls on the market and they're there right now because I recorded the weekend people and many of those are there during the week as well, certain weekdays. It was definitely more muted but that was because visitors were keeping their distance from each other. But you know, everything is up and running there. And I've spent all lockdown indoors. I like being indoors generally, but it was so nice to be back outside and to see all those people again, all those familiar faces, and see what they're up to, have a bit of a chinwag. It was good, you know? It was needed. It was fun. <laughs> and now let's head over to Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, who's talking about what to forage this month. Hi Sue, so today we're going to talk about fruits mainly. It seems like a nice thing to talk about. The main fruit season's just starting. So first of all we'll start off with the soft fruits um, from the Bramble family or Rubus family. The main three of these you'll find at the moment are blackberries, dewberries and wild raspberries. 
So we'll start off with the last one, which is wild raspberries. Same plant as what you get at home, basically cultivated, but the ones in the wild are grown under less than ideal circumstances, so they tend to be a lot tartar, a lot smaller, but they are still absolutely fantastic, and you can use them in exactly the same way. I actually prefer them, to be honest. I like the tartness. Where would you find them, then? I've never seen a wild raspberry. Woodlands, edge of parklands, they like a lot of drainage, so anything that's well-drained. For ours, we find them in, in amongst pine, in quite a like sandy wood basically that we pick ours from but they like a lot of drainage and there's really nothing you can mistake them for why are they i mean are they wild in the sense that they've come from people dropping raspberries or were they the original raspberries i think that yeah i think the original raspberries would have been wild when we cultivated them and then the ones that we know well are grown with fertilizers and compost and everything like that so they just get bigger and therefore sweeter as well because they're grown under the right conditions and the wild ones, yeah, some will be garden escapees, some will be sown by birds, and some will have been plants that have been there. So what about the other fruits that you mentioned? So blackberries are one we all know. They're nice and easy. Dewberries are very similar to a blackberry. They grow low down. So you see brambles and what you think might be blackberries, no more than a foot high. I've seen them up to a foot and a half high maybe, but they're very low down. Matte black, so they've got that kind of almost white yeastiness on the outside of them and their seed pods are much bigger. So instead of having loads and loads of ones like a blackberry and a raspberry are similar, they're probably double the size. Oh, so the actual fleshy part is, is yeah. larger? Okay. The, the fleshy part of the actual fruit, the berry itself, is probably a little bit smaller than a blackberry, but the individual pods that you have on the berry are much bigger than the individual pods you have on a blackberry. I've seen some of those, and I always thought they were blackberries. Yeah, in fact, yeah, most people do, and in fact they grow just outside your house. <laughs> Yep, I'll take you for a walk afterwards. Thank you, thank you. I'll go and have a look. (laughs) (laughs) They're lovely. Very, again, much similar flavour to blackberries. Um, Things you can do with them. We tend to ferment them in honey, which is so simple. You take honey, a nice, natural, raw honey. Add the berries. The liquid seeps out the berries and allows the conditions for fermentation to start. If you're a bit unsure, you could always put a tiny bit of, uh, say, your sauerkraut juice or something like that into there just to get it started, a bit of start culture. And watch the honey bubble away. Oh, how interesting. So basically, don't wash your berries, just plop them straight in. Natural yeast. With blackberries, a great thing we do with blackberries, it's a little bit different, because obviously everyone bakes them in pies, makes jams, all of that. We dry them out and make them into a powder, and then they go very well made into marshmallows or meringues and things like that. Works really nicely and it's worth a good try. That sounds really interesting. So you have to have quite a good dehydrator or dry them out in your oven very low heat. I would recommend that. I mean, you can dry them out in front of the, under the sun, but to be honest, a dehydrator is going to be the best in this situation when you get something a bit more moist like that. I mean, a day like today, you probably get away with it in the sun, but they're pretty few and far between. <laughs> True enough, and you'd have to leave them out for two or three days at yeah, least. Yeah, you're more guaranteed. likely to get rot before you're going to get dry at the moment with the weather. And then you were mentioning about some of the stone fruits that are wild. Yeah, so the lovely stone fruits we're getting at the moment, there are so many different types of plums going around at the moment. Again, some wild, some cherry plums, mirabelles, there's garden escapee varieties. Um, they're all edible. They're all part of the prunus family. There are so many that you see in sort of hedgerows and cycling down pathways, walking down pathways, and they often just fall on the floor. What a waste. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you might as well pick them. We take them home, we pickle them, we preserve them in loads and loads of different ways. We feed them to the baby. He absolutely good. loves them. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Saves on baby food. Crumbles again, pies, all the standards. But they're a really good thing that are going at the moment. And a couple of other variations on those, again, are in the prunus family. You've got the damsons and the bullaces that are just coming through at the moment. Damsons are obviously like plums, but they're a lot deeper in colour. The leaves are slightly different. Yellower fruit in the middle. They're fleshy of the fruit. 
and mm-hmm. so I find them a bit drier. So how do you distinguish? I know what those, the Mirabelles are the lovely yellow yeah. ones, aren't they? Yes. To be honest, with the plum varieties, there's not a huge point. You don't need to distinguish them, just use them and eat them. (laughs) Once you've identified it as a plum, have a nibble. Some will be drier, some will be tarter, some will be sweeter. And just find the ones you like and go with it like that. But they will all have stones in them, won't they? Yes, they will, definitely, yeah. Yeah, so from your baby's point of view, take the stone out first. Oh, yeah, yeah. We always cut them in half and then (laughs) eat them like a melon, bless him. And the bullaces, they're another one that's in contention. So you've got your slows, your bullaces and your damsons. And people, especially with the slows and bullaces, tend to get them quite confused. Bullaces are a lot rarer. You do find them out in the fen, and there is a couple of sites around here that I know of that we go and pick them. They are slightly bigger, slightly more oval than a slow, in all intents and purposes, very similar. You can use them in the way of a plum. Uh, we make jams out of them, but the favourite thing for me to do is to infuse them in gins with a bit of brown sugar. It's really interesting, actually, because you would expect to get a really plummy flavour, and actually it comes out really raisiny. So it gets you a, a gin that tastes almost exactly like raisins. Well, really interesting. One question i wanted to ask you i made some of the elderflower cordial but it's developing some mold or yeast on top it's what should i do pour it away it depends if it's yeast or mold so if it's a yeast then yeah you should be fine but if it's mold yeah it needs to go away there's no saving it it's it's hard because with elderflower it doesn't get up to a very high alcohol level so it's not the best preserve it needs keeping in the fridge all the time and this was keeping it in yeah, the fridge probably means that something wasn't sterile along the way or mm-hmm. it could just be it's yeast and it's natural and there's nothing wrong with it at all next time i think i will go the further preserving stuff of sticking it in the freezer as soon as i've made it in ice cube trays and then i can use it yeah, yeah. that's nice and easy glass is one of the best things to do it in but obviously you don't want the bottles exploding quite so either do it in plastic bottles and squeeze them or if you go do it in glass which is easier to sterilize so therefore safer to do don't put a lid on it put a balloon over the top oh that's a clever and idea you can watch it inflate i will be careful next year <laughs> <laughs> yeah we didn't get much made this year in the end when they first came out over in our village there was about three days of sunshine and we were having a nightmare with the baby so we just didn't get out for elderflowers this year that was one of the ones that we lost out on which leads me to the next thing, though, that we're going to talk about, which will be meadowsweet. So quite similar flowers in the sense of it's white and it's in hedgerows. They actually aren't trees like the elder. Key identification points, it's got quite a windy stem that goes up to the flower at the top. The flower smells like marzipan, almonds, marzipan. And to check the leaves, they've got a red stem that runs through them, but the easiest way to check the leaves is just to scrunch them up, smell them, and they'll smell like germaline very tcp qualities yes. to the leaves so yeah okay. we've we've used the leaves a lot in baking and stuff like that at this time of the year now it's about the flowers but unlike elderflowers where you can leave them in for a little bit longer when you're making anything with meadow sweet sub it in for elderflower recipes so make your cordials your champagnes your jellies anything like that. don't leave it in for as long no more than 24 hours i would air to the side of more about 16 to 18 hours then you extract the lovely marzipan flavor if you leave it in for any longer then you're looking at getting the medicinal flavor that comes through which we don't want to be drinking medicine as such no i mean we do use that flavor in the kitchen but we use it on purpose because if you think like tcp qualities and things like that are used in whiskies as a as a flavor on purpose 
So we do use that in some food, but it's not what you're going to want at home. Chances are you're going to want that marzipani. It's quite a sickly flavour. I mean, if you smell the flowers, you'll understand straight away. It tastes how it smells, and it is very sickly marzipan. Is it quite easy to find meadowsweed? It is. You're looking in ditches, basically. So whenever you go for a drive or a walk in the countryside, any ditches or on the edge of streams or rivers or anything like that, it's, it's really easy. It's absolutely everywhere at the moment. It's nice, white, fluffy little cloud flowers. Sounds quite an easy one to find. Yeah, marzipan smell of the flowers, germline smell of the leaves i don't know anything that's got those two things that pairs together oh that's great well in that case i if i've um ruined my elderflower cordials i think i'll make some meadowsweet ones and see how those go yep well steve that was absolutely lovely and let's hope for some continued sunny weather yep certainly a bit of sunshine all the day and a bit of rain overnight so we get the mushrooms out that's the Uh, perfect one that'll be great and i'll look forward (laughs) to talking to you next month yep hopefully we've we've had a bit of rain we'll talk about mushrooms next time that was Steve Thompson, and you can find his stall on Sundays from 10.30am on the corner of Burnt Close and Coton Road in Grantchester, and also in Caldecott on Saturdays. We covered the Orchard East project here on Flavour last year, and now a book has been produced. Sue spoke with food historian Monica Aske about it and the background. The project started, three-year project, it must have started 1st of March 2017, running for three years. It has been extended now twice. It was going to be extended to the end of August, but because of COVID, it's now going to be extended to the end of this year. It involves, gosh, a whole range of things. It covers the six counties of the east of England. So that is Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex, Cambridgeshire, Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire. And doing orchard surveys just to see where the orchards are and comparing them with maps from the turn of the 20th century to see where the orchards were then and what remains. It's keeping orchard skills alive, so things like grafting courses, pruning courses, that sort of thing. Oral history, people's memories of orchards in those six counties. A culinary project, which is what I've been involved with. So a whole range of things. And this book is a summary of elements of that? What this book is, it's really to do with the culinary project. So it's called Orchard Recipes from Eastern England, Landscape, Fruit and Heritage. It takes each of the six counties and looks at the landscape in each of those counties and then the, the fruit and orchard history in each of those counties. So it's things like where the orchards were, things like jam factories, so chivers, or Wilkin and Sons in Essex. And then fruit varieties, which either originated in particular counties or were grown in quantity in particular counties. And also the nurseries, tree nurseries. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Because, of course, you know, I I know about things like the Cambridge Gage, but sometimes it's difficult to find information about this. Absolutely. Well, it's all in the book. And I forgot, (laughs) perhaps the important part, um, it also has recipes. So the recipes are, again, a mixture of historic recipes from medieval texts up to Victorian, traditional recipes, so things like Bedfordshire Clanger, then recipes that I've devised using particular apples and their culinary properties. Actually, it's not just apples, it's also plums, cherries and other fruit. What is the title of the book and when will we be able to get hold of it? Orchard Recipes from... Eastern England, Landscape, Fruit and Heritage by Monica Askey and Tom Williams. And it's published by Poppyland Publishing. And you can get hold of it now through Poppyland or various bookshops. I'm so glad it's been able to be produced during this period. 
timing wasn't ideal. It actually came out just about the same time as lockdown. But you managed to get it out there. Yes, various, various launch events have been discussed, but have been on hold for obvious reasons. No, I know uh, that Alan would like to do a much longer interview with yourself and your um, colleague, Tom. We will look forward to hearing more about that. Anyway, Thanks. thank you very much indeed, Monica. Monica Askey there from the Orchards East Project. More on that next month, we hope. More news now. The Bushel Box Farm in Willingham has a small cop of Violetta plums, a mild-tasting variety, and that will be followed by Sanctus and Opal. Keep an eye on their social media for updates. As we heard earlier, Mark Poynton is taking over the Ancient Shepherds in Fenditton. You can book a table via resdiary.com slash restaurant slash mjp. Jimmy's Night Shelter is looking for various items of gardening equipment to get its community garden up and running. So, if you have anything spare, such as a strimmer, a hoe, a fork, spade, pruning shears, wheelbarrows, compost, vegetable seeds, plants, compost bins, they'd love to hear from you. The White Cottage Baking School in Kingston, Cambridgeshire, has announced its workshops for autumn. Several courses have sold out already, but the following are still available in September. French Bread Making Workshop, the 17th of September, 10 till 4. Introduction to Bread Making, the 26th of September, 10 till 3. Sourdough Workshop, the 30th of September, 10 till 5.30. Cambridge Cookery School is also back in action. Some courses where there are still places in August include 3rd of August, Pasta for Kids Morning from 10 till 12.15, 4th and 5th August, a two-day intensive cooking for life course for teens from 10 till 4pm, and then the 10th to 14th of August, Duke of Edinburgh Residential Award Cooking for Uni, 9 till 4pm. <laughs> Uh, a quick reminder that you can follow Flavor on Twitter at Flavor105 and also now on Instagram, where we are also at Flavor105. Now, Sue's been up to something rather interesting recently. Here she is to talk about it. I'm just going to say a little bit about this amazing symposium on food and cookery that I attended this last weekend. This was the Oxford Symposium on food and cookery and it's an annual weekend conference at which academics, food writers, cooks and others with a a real interest in food and culture meet to discuss different and current issues in food studies and food history. They have a different theme every year. This year the theme was herbs and spices. I went to my first Oxford Food Symposium in 2017 and haven't had a chance to go for the last couple of years. Then this virtual symposium was the solution as to how things were going to be dealt with in a time of crisis with a virtual conference. There were more than 500 attendees at the conference and it was all done virtually on Zoom. The symposium was brilliantly brought to life in the most amazing virtual way by having a journey to Oxford. You could actually go on a virtual train, which took you an hour to get there, and then enter through the foyer with a sound effect. And then you could find out who the other symposiasts were and their interests. All the papers 
were available online as abstracts and then will be printed after the conference. All of the presentations were available via Zoom with their presenters talking through them. This was absolutely brilliant because you could actually ask questions as they were presenting or at the end. And then there were virtual coffee breaks, tea breaks and lunch breaks. Very active conversations were happening all throughout, talking about saffron, talking about peppers, talking about vanilla, ancient herbs, the uses of herbs. Some of the papers were quite esoteric, and so you had titles such as Now Entering Hyperspace, The Boomer's Last Hurrah by Doug Duda. And this was all about the fact that as we age, our sense of taste tends to decline a bit. And what can be done about this and the fact that you can enhance visual and you can enhance hearing. But how do you actually go about helping your taste buds to sparkle a little bit more as you age? Then other ones such as a visual history of basil, season to measure, how you measure in early culinary recipes and that relation to medicine. Another fascinating one on the savoury course at Oxford and Cambridge Colleges. As part of this, there were meals arranged so that you could do a cook-along. And there were recipes for that. There were virtual drink sessions in the evening. There was also the V-Fringe, which, as it says, was for enjoyment, enlightenment and entertainment. Using it as a connection, mini presentations, notes, poems, songs, even dances... Lots of sort of interesting questions. It was just such a fantastic experience to be able to connect virtually with people globally, share interests, chat at the same time about your fascination with food. In fact, it was so successful that it's being suggested that the conference next year, when hopefully it will be happening actually in Oxford, that it has some of the best elements of the V Symposium because it was a really good way to connect with other people. It's actually still going on for the next couple of weeks with mini presentations happening and then a a finale on the 2nd of August. So it was such a really brilliant experience. It was energising, exhausting, almost like the real conference itself. I would highly recommend that you look at next year's details for the Oxford Food Symposium online. I'm free. I'm free. Here's where we would normally bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge, but not while we're pre-recorded. However, we can tell you that the information can be found on the Olio app, which is free to download. Yes, and the Olio app is in full flow. Some examples of what's recently been available are tins of Baxter's cream of tomato soup, a packet of fusilli pasta, and plenty of items from Pret-a-Manger, including baguettes, soup, salads, sandwiches, and pastries. And there is another free app called Too Good To Go, which several food outlets in and around Cambridge use to sell any unsold goods they have shortly before they close at knockdown prices. One example is Cambridge Cheese Company's Magic Bag, which contains items such as homemade pork pies, scotch eggs, artisan cheeses, oatmeal biscuits, cured charcuterie, antipasti and freshly baked bread rolls. Uh, The price of the contents, which varies according to what's available, is normally £15, but it's available for £4.99. 
Other retailers recently using Too Good To Go are the Cambridge Oven in Hills Road, Hardwick Stores in Hardwick and the Smoking Cow from the Market in Cambridge. Deep in the Cambridge University Botanic Garden is an ancient library, the Corey Library, and I went to speak with librarian Jenny Sargent about it and what it told us about food. There's actually been a library associated with the, the Botanic Garden for as long as the garden's been in existence, even when it was on its former site in the centre of town. So that's rather exciting. The, it is, the former site books. being the new, new the museum, museum site. site. Yes, there's nothing left of it at all now, um, but, but the garden was refounded here uh, in the mid-19th century and some books came with that. And the library's grown since then and finally moved here when they altered the building slightly to accommodate all these books. And what was the building before then? So before then it was actually the director's house which is rather wonderful and I've spoken to his, some of his children who grew, remember growing up here. I think this room was their living room um, and they've shown me various other parts of the building that they use. So yeah it's wonderful. What a mag- absolutely magnificent place to yeah. live. What sort of books are there here? Well it's mainly as you'd expect sort of botany, horticulture, it serves the, the current gardeners, so if they want to look up things, how do I grow this, or what pest is that, how, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but also, during the 1940s and 50s, when the garden had a great bequest um, from a chap called Reginald Corey, the directors saw fit to try and develop the library as a real um, specialist library for history of British horticulture. So at that point, they started buying quite a lot of early books, so we're talking books from the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries on those subjects to really try and make it something that was um, a real authority in, in those subject areas. So you get academics in here yes, doing their research. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not only people interested in the history of horticulture and botany, but people who are interested in the history of books, because of course we've got examples of, of old bindings, um, you know, the ways that books were produced back in before the sort of mid 19th century was completely different from how it's done now. And have you got many books on growing things you can eat fruits vegetables it's not a sort of specialist area of the library and of course in terms of the modern works here the garden staff aren't really growing any of that kind of thing but in terms of the earlier books um it it comes into the, the subject matter of a lot of those because they were providing really manuals for um the gardener or the lord of the manor to consult so alongside telling you when you might need to plant your roses or prune whatever they're also telling you about the kitchen garden which of course is so important when you need to do things to grow your herbs and your orchards that kind of thing are these some of them these books that are laid out on the table they look pretty old yes some of them are so i've put a little selection out here and we're going right through from um, this lovely old speckled leather volume which was published in 1594 through the various centuries right up to mr loudon who some of your listeners might recognize that name he was a prolific writer and he published that in 1842, loud and suburban horticulturist. He wrote reams and reams um, trying to educate his reader on how to have uh, the ideal garden and uh, what to do with it and when. And what about the contents? Anything yes. that we might find of interest? Um, certainly, I'm sure. So let's have a look. Mr. Switzer, Stephen Switzer, he wrote an awful lot of useful books. So Switzer's Fruit Garden oh, is that's one. That's rather a nice binding as well. It's a lovely old leather binding. You can see various bits of decoration there. Um, and then inside, as we open it up, um, we come across not only a lot of text, but these wonderful um, fold-outs, little diagrams and plans. So here we've got the plan of a fruit or kitchen garden. 
um, on two different levels for early and late productions. Gosh. So it's really going into all the detail of what you might need to put where. So they're really trying to, to help the reader to plan the, the formal areas of their gardens. And a very nice sort of geometric plan as well. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. physically beautiful. Yes. And in fact, uh, you know, things like this would obviously increase the production costs for a book. Um, so to, to have an engraving like this is, is something, you know, that's more than just printing text. So yeah, mm. lovely contents. And heavily annotated by somebody. Yes, that's one of the wonderful things about lots of the books in here. Um, because they're such practical books, you know, manuals on how to do things in your garden, they've been used by people. So they've been annotated. Um, and, you know, you can learn all sorts of things about what people, the people who are reading them thought was important. So these books aren't just interesting for their textual content. They're interesting because they can tell us so much about the history um, and the people that were associated with them, which is wonderful. There's a particularly nice example of annotation in this book from 1715. Um, so just opening up that front cover and you can see on the inside of the cover, somebody has written down all sorts of measurements, um, obviously relating to their estate, I think. So from the door to the kitchen garden gate, nine rods. So I'm not very good at hot on this, but I gather a rod was a... a a previous method yeah, actually, of measuring. Actually, it's still used in oh. the world of allotments. So yeah, I mean, just inside this book, we haven't even got to the printed contents, but we found out something about somebody, a former owner, which is wonderful. And then as you turn through it, you can see that he's even inserted some blank pages so he can make his own notes about various things. So there's a lot more to, to these books than, than you might expect. Yes. And I guess by looking through these books well you can see what people must have liked to, to grow I mean is there anything exactly take, anything take you by surprise yeah but you'll find things like plans for for example a melonry so you know it's interesting to think about when certain fruit and vegetables became um, important for, for being produced but, uh, but a melonry implies some really quite nice hot weather doesn't it it would do if it was being grown in its natural way, but these melonries would have these um, hot beds in them. I gather there would be a way of actually heating um, the area in which they were grown. So all sorts of techniques developed for uh, enabling us in this country that doesn't enjoy that weather to be able to grow grow these things. Right, so they put a lot of work, expense, absolutely, absolutely, yes, it. yeah. And it's interesting because some of these books were obviously aimed at. The person who has a, a large estate and some of them often the smaller volumes the much less illustrated because of course the illustrations were expensive were clearly aimed at the person who was actually doing the growing so you've got books being written to appeal to not just the gardener the man getting his hands dirty but the lord of the manor as well so this is calendarium hortense the gardener's almanac by john evelyn and this is typical of the kind of book that had that broke the year into its months and gave you strict instructions as to what to do in each month so we can look here at march as it's march now so it's got some information about march have 31 days and then it tells you what to do in each area of the garden um, during that period so the orchard the olitory garden. garden so here we go now is your chiefest and best time for raising on the hotbed melons cucumbers goods etc um, which about the sixth eighth or tenth day will be ready for the seed so it's very specific you know if, if you don't know what it is you're supposed to be doing in your garden um, you can turn to your little mm. pocket size book mm. here and and find out so this is quite typical of the kind of thing um, that was being produced 
to help to help that that squire with his gardening and also some of them often say um, in their introductions that they're to help the lord of the manor make sure his gardeners are, are doing what they should be because I think there was a feeling that the gardeners had all this knowledge in an area the squire knew nothing about. And so he, you know, he needs to get educated so he knows that they're working as hard as they should be. So they're suspicious of the working classes. <laughs> Just <laughs> a bit. Life, yeah. Look at this. Now also plant peaches and nectarines. Mm. And this is what year is this so book again? So this one published? So we just turn back to the title page and we see London 1706. So people were growing peaches and nectarines yeah, in this country in 1706. I think it, it seems that things were quite sophisticated. And when, when you look at those plans for creating the areas where you'll grow those things, that they really knew what they were doing in terms of creating the right conditions for growing such, such things. Yeah, gosh, I'm amazed. Mm. Well, where do these books come from, by the way? Have they been handed down and eventually donated to the library? Some of them have. A lot of them were bought in that period that I mentioned when our directors in the 1940s and 50s was, were actually putting quite a bit of money into developing this collection. Um, and that's what makes them so interesting because they haven't just sat here on the shelves since, since the day they were published. They've actually had lives with people and been used by people and only then when they've you know come up at auction or whatever in the 1950s have they ended up being here so that's why they're so so interesting because they've got all those that all that evidence in them of, mm. of the people that used them we're not collecting early material like this um anymore what we're mainly buying at the moment is things to support our gardeners so if, if the gardeners wants to develop something new and we don't have any any books on that then we'll ask them for recommendations right. so in fact what you're doing is creating your own history for the future well exactly mm. yes yeah mm -hmm. that's it mm. yeah Right, well, thanks very much, Jenny. I You're could welcome. spend hours here. Yes. <laughs> on, a, and on a wet day like today, it's <laughs> yeah, quite an attractive to, yeah. proposition. Thanks very much, You're that's welcome. great. Thanks. And that was Jenny Sargent from the Corey Library in the University Botanic Garden. And there is the familiar sound of green onions, signalling the beginning of our jobs section. Uh, just a small number this week, Scott's All Day in Mill Road has an urgent need for a pizza and brunch chef. At least one year's experience is required. Jamaica Blue in Lion Yard needs chefs and a year's experience is preferred. And that's all we have time for today. We're here on alternate Saturdays at 1pm, repeated on Sundays at 2pm and then again on Mondays at 6pm and podcast early in that week. And coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio today is Tony Barnfield with Classical Cambridge. We've been bookended by Tony Barnfield programmes today, but he'll be here in just a moment to give you a full rundown of his programme. And following Classical Cambridge, at 5pm it's another edition of Polish Waves, the station's long-running show dedicated to bringing British and Polish cultures closer together through a mix of music, entertainment and interviews. And then it's on to the 105 Sports Special, hosted by Ollie Slack and Tim Armitage, as they discuss the latest from Cambridge United, including Gary Waddock's appointment as head coach and how the squad is shaping up ahead of the coming season. The Big Band Show is at 7 with John Hammond as your host, this time looking at the work of clarinetist, singer, arranger and big band leader Woody Herman. At 8, it's Let the Good Times Roll, all the best rock and roll from every era with Jackie Bond. And then at 9pm, it's Rebel Arts Radio. And finally at 10, it's Stagger, and they'll be celebrating 10 years of our station with some of the best local music of the decade, as well as being joined by a host of former Stagger presenters who'll be returning to share their memories and the choices of their best music. 
But that's all from us. We will be back on the 1st of August. So until then, bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.